0: But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $2,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept a job. Go sign up at hirecom slash Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at Snapci.com slash RubyRogues. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use. Their support is excellent. And their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code RubyRogues, you'll get a ten-dollar credit. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode two hundred fifty-two of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Coraline Ada Emke. Hey,
1: everybody.
0: Pete Hodgson. I guess you're the guest, but anyway, I'll introduce you. Now. Oh, I'm the guest. I guess you're
1: right. Hello,
0: everybody. Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, Quick shout out about, uh, well, actually, I think it's too late for Ruby Remote Comp, but uh, anyway, keep an eye out for the other conferences at allremotecomps.com. Pete, do you want to introduce yourself? I know you've been on the show before, and we've done several shows over at the iFreak show, but it's been a while. Hello, my name is Pete
1: Hodgson. I am a consultant with a consulting company called ThoughtWorks, also known as that company where Martin Fowler works. We do have other... Um, members of Works besides him. and uh, yeah, I guess I, I, I describe my job as helping my clients deliver software and helping my clients get better at delivering software. So part of what my, what I do is kind of developing software, but also part of what I do is advising clients on how to on good kind of engineering practices or agile practices architectural stuff
0: um, to help them get better at,
1: at building software.
0: Awesome. Now, uh, I just want to let our listeners know we did have a little bit of a technical snafu where the first half of our original recording of this episode kind of got messed up. Avdi was on that call. Coraline's on this call. So it should be interesting. And I guess I'm just a little bit more well-informed since I was on both. But anyway, cheating, uh, I am. (laughs) Well, and I've had I've had conversations similar to this. We had Neil Ford on the iFreak show and he talked about trunk based development and good development practices there, and made a case for feature toggles, which is what we're talking about today. So, and I think that's a good place to start. Pete, do you want to kind of explain why or, you know, where feature toggles come in and especially what the benefits are of trunk-based development versus long-lived branches? Yeah, sure. So maybe,
1: maybe a good place to start would be some history. So back in the day, maybe 10 or 15 years ago, Companies like Flickr and then later Etsy really made a name for themselves in these kind of practices that we now sometimes refer to as continuous delivery or continuous deployment. And they were doing crazy things like deploying their production applications once or twice a day, which at the time just sounded bonkers. Um, nowadays, it's, it's a lot more standard, but they were really kind of blazing trail in terms of continuously delivering their code base into production at least once a day. I think Flickr were quite well known for saying that, I think it was Flickr, or maybe this is Etsy, but they, I think it was Etsy maybe, said that one of their kind of their guiding principles was someone should be able to join the company and that on their first day at work to commit production code. Uh, into like make a production change to the code base on their first day at work. So these companies were really pushing the boundaries and now these practices have become more widespread. And one of the ways that both Flickr and Etsy and lots of other organizations now were achieving this, um, ability to, to release to production very, very frequently was a technique called feature toggles. And feature toggles, which are also sometimes referred to as feature flags, feature bits, feature flippers. The basic idea is to be able to decouple deployment of your software from release of functionality. And we achieve that by shipping latent code into production. So we have code that is in our code base and maybe is being tested, but isn't actually turned on for production. Uh, for users in our production environment. And we can kind of choose to flip that feature off or on based not on a code change necessarily, but on a configuration change. And this allows us to do what you were talking about, Chuck, this idea of trunk-based development, where we don't create long-lived feature branches for work in progress. We instead essentially kind of hide that work in progress or mask that work in progress behind a feature toggle which allows us to do all of our work on the same branch on master or trunk whatever you want to call it and that allows us to avoid merge conflict or merge hell that you get from
0: long-lived feature branches it's funny that you talk about that i actually have an experience with merge hell and uh, i dealt with it on a weekly basis i was working about 10 or 15 hours for a client had a team that was running ahead with their application. I was working on the next generation of their application, but it was still enough with the one or two people that were working on that to where they were consistently changing the system out from under me uh, while I was working on that long-lived feature branch. So I'd work on it my 10 or 15 hours. The two of them would put in, you know, 20 or 30 hours each. And what what I was doing was actually pulling in reporting and building graphs and things like that with uh, D3. Dot .js and I'd go merge it and inevitably my graphs would be broken because the data had moved or changed. It had changed shape to the point where I had to rejigger D3 to pull the data out again and that would be next week's work and then things would have changed again and needless to say the client wasn't super happy and I wasn't super happy and anyway it was just really interesting uh, if I had been working on trunk then I think init- you know well I think what would have happened was I would have merged my changes in and then they would have done their work, run the tests, seen that my stuff was broken and then realized that something else was dependent on what they were doing and it wouldn't have been an issue. But yeah, it was week after week after week. It doesn't even take a long time. So what you usually hear when you hear merge hell is two or three people went off and they did their own thing for two or three months. They made big changes to the system and then they came back to merge it back to master and master had moved either because another... Big branch similar to theirs had been merged in, or because um, master had just advanced due to other work being committed. And anyway, so then they got merge hell, and then you've got to figure out what do we keep from the two of these and all that stuff. Right, and so I, I
2: think we're talking about like not having long-lived branches, but how short-lived is a branch when you're using this feature toggle kind of approach?
1: So that's a, that's a good question. I mean, I guess. I don't have like an, uh, I I can, I can say from, from my kind of sense more than anything else, anything that has been on a branch for more than a few days, uh, like a handful of days, maybe two or three days is probably getting to the point that I would get uncomfortable that we're diverging because any of that work isn't being integrated with other people's work. And that normally makes me pretty uncomfortable. There's, as with everything, there's uh, exceptions to that rule, perhaps. But to me, if it's longer than about two or three, if a branch has been around for more than two or three days, I start to get nervous. Why not? I'm um, just constantly rebase? Ah, so that's a that's a great question because that is often what people say is like, oh well, if I'm constantly rebasing or merging in from master, then I'm getting everyone else's changes. That is true if everyone is working on master, but if you have two long-lived feature branches. Let's say we've got Sally's working on one feature branch and Kieran's working on another feature branch and they're both pulling in from Master. They're pulling in changes that are happening on Master, but Sally's not seeing Kieran's changes and Kieran's not seeing Sally's changes. Right. Um, And then you get, of course, Sally here's that Kieran's been on this branch for two weeks, and Sally makes a mental note after stand-up to make sure that she merges before <laughs> Kieran started. <so> <laughs> so that's that exactly he, what um, I was thinking. I merged it first, so dang it. it. Right. I think um Martin Martin Fowler on his website has a pretty good it's either a blicky article. I think it's like a blicky post on this idea of trunk-based development, and he has a, a pretty good diagram that kind of shows that visually, this idea of you know, first merge wins, and this this meme of like, oh, if I'm rebasing from master, then I'm still doing continuous integration is a really uh, I hear it a lot, and I it really it kind of frustrates me because I uh, it doesn't frustrate me, but it kind of it makes me a bit sad because I I feel like a lot of people read into that 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 they really can have these long-lived branches and that they're still doing continuous integration. If you're not doing CI, if you're not integrating with a shared branch. Uh, on a very regular basis, ideally daily, then you are just not doing CI. You're, you're still building software, that's fine, uh, but don't kid yourselves that you're doing CI if you're not all integrating with
0: a shared branch on a very regular basis. So, so how do feature toggles actually save your bacon here then? So you get in, everybody's pushing everything to master, and, and we're talking Git, I guess we're assuming Git instead of SVN or something. But uh, so everybody's pushing to the master or the trunk uh, branch. And, you know, you have stuff that you don't want to release. So you put a feature toggle around it. Is that kind of the idea? It's just a, essentially a, a fancy name for an if statement.
1: <laughs> yes. Actually, it's kind of funny. I, 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 so I wrote this big article. About feature toggles, and, and Martin Fowler was nice enough to host it on his website, so it obviously got a lot of visibility. And some of the comments that I saw on like Hacker News or Reddit or something was basically that like, "Geez, these consultants, you like, they write like 200 lines to or 200 words to describe an if statement." Was I think one of them? <laughs> right, so I think so. You know, I think um, 200
2: words to describe their 200 line if statement. Uh, right. Right. Hacker News
1: it is fundamentally, so the way that I advise people to start down this path is to not even do an if statement, just to have like commented out blocks of code, right? And I think that's kind of how some people kind of start down this path without even really thinking about it is they'll have some work in progress, but they want to, they want to merge some other changes. They want to integrate kind of their changes. So they'll just kind of like comment out the stuff that they're working on, or they'll say like if true and then if false and like comment out one of those lines. And that, that's kind of like conceptually, sure, that's, that's, that's a type of feature toggling. It gets a lot it's, more It's a
0: universal feature toggle, right? Because it's a comment. Right. Right.
2: But the, uh, the point of what you said earlier is that the feature being enabled or disabled is a matter of configuration. So having, having something in the code like that isn't really a configurable option
1: so how do you make that configurable so we could talk about that but I, I i would actually so i will i'll push back on that a little bit in that i still think so let's say that we change from commenting out a a line and saying like if, if true is if, if false and like hard, basically hard coding it right let's say we change from that to reading from a yaml file and then saying you know if this property is there then it's true otherwise it's false now, if I, as part of my deployment pipeline, take that YAML file and my code and package it into some artifact that is essentially going to be running there, uh, running in, in an environment, either way, whether I've hard-coded the, the feature toggle configuration or if I'm reading it from a YAML file, I would argue that conceptually that's actually pretty similar. I mean, the, the difference, there's a difference in the implementation and it's more, there's clearly, it's clearly more manageable. To use something like a configuration, and um, there's other advantages. But I would say, in terms of kind of like changes of flowing through a deployment pipeline, they're they're, they're actually kind of the same thing. You have a yeah, that's not, not that's not actually what I was thinking about. I was thinking about a database table with features with yeah. a key value with
2: key value pairs. I would say this feature is enabled or not enabled, so that would really allow you to make that switch without another deploy.
1: Yeah, so that's often the kind of the path people walk down is to start off with something hard coded, and then we move to a configuration file. Uh, quite often, uh, what I see in a, at a lot of places is um, that configuration file gets more sophisticated, and there's kind of some ability to layer uh, a base conf- have a base configuration and then kind of overlay some environment specific configuration. Maybe this, we could get back to this, but I sometimes see this kind of uh, being taken a little bit too far. And it's actually really hard for anyone to understand what the current configuration is in an environment. Sure. But yeah, and then, then we move, we, uh, often people will move past that to uh, some kind of dynamic runtime configuration, often read from an application database. Kind of usually it's like, oh, we've already got this database that we're reading the users and the accounts and stuff from. So we'll just add an extra table called features. And then sometimes it go, it gets taken as far as using a special, a special purpose runtime system with a data store as such. And, you know, quite often that's one of these fancy new key value stores like etcd or uh, zookeeper or const or something like that. Um, uh, still- but it gets quite expensive to not expensive but it gets as soon as you move to that runtime configuration of these toggles you introduce a lot more flexibility but you also introduce some challenges in terms of making sure that all of your the nodes in in a cluster for example are are configured the same way Uh, and also in terms of like how do you detect that the configuration has changed and what do you do in response to that change do you need to like bounce the process and restart your rails app or can you you can figure it on the fly. All of that kind of stuff can actually, there's, there's some subtlety in there that, that can get people the first time they work on this kind of stuff.
0: I'm still thinking about like that basic case of a feature toggle where it's just like, if, uh, this condition. So for example, if feature enabled or if they're in the beta user group, you know, let's say that you're only, you're yeah. toggling it on for a certain group, but not other groups, or if they've signed up before a specific date, how do you keep track of those? Cause I can see it becoming, Sort of unwieldy, right? Where you have um, a whole bunch of if feature dot enabled in there, or if this feature is enabled, or if that feature is enabled, or if people have signed up here, or the there, right? So how do you how do you differentiate the if statements that are actually you know logical? deviations in your code from the ones that are actual feature toggles that turn things on and off for people
1: so the way that uh, i advise people to approach this is to try and decouple the decision point like where that the actual conditional statement or whatever you're using to kind of make the decision of which path which code path to go down decouple that from the reason for choosing one way or another so essentially keep distinct the toggle point from the decision logic, so the, the reason that's motivating you to do something. And so often a good way of doing that is to introduce some kind of class or object, like oftentimes it will be a singleton, uh, that you can ask all of these kind of toggling questions, and that class kind of encapsulates the reason behind the, the routing decision. So um, let's say, for example, you have... You're working on an e-commerce system, and you have a recommendations panel that you're adding to the home page to kind of um, show the user recommended products. Now, there's probably going to be a few different motivations behind showing or hiding that panel. So you could be not showing it because the user's not logged in, uh, or you could not be showing it because it's still a feature that's in development and it's not ready to be released to production, but you still want to have it in your code base. Or you could not be showing that recommendations panel because you're undergoing heavy load and operations staff want to uh, disable recommendations because it introduces a bunch of extra load on your back-end systems. Or perhaps you're doing an A-B test and you uh, you want to show the recommendations panel to one cohort of users and not show it to another cohort and see if it affects their behavior in a positive or negative way. So all of those are different decision or different reasons for making a decision but you're still always saying like should i show or hide the um the recommendations panel so what i would advise in most cases is to have like a a little a toggle router class um, and usually i see this being called like features and you can just say features dot show recommendation panel question mark and inside of that method is all of that potentially different types of decision, like is the user logged in? Are they in the right cohort? Are we undergoing heavy load? All of that kind of logic can be encapsulated inside of your toggle router and at the toggle point where that if statement is, you just have like if features dot show recommendations panel. So you can kind of clearly understand where all of the toggle points are in your code, but you've not got like the logic behind those, those routing decisions kind of smeared throughout the code base, which is what happens a lot. It actually, happens a lot in Rails apps. Like I see in a lot of Rails apps in the rendering code somewhere, like if user dot something. And really to me, that's kind of a violation of kind of single responsibility because you've got both the decision to both the switching between two code paths and the reason for that all mixed in in the same in your rendering code, right? So I've seen so that
2: quite a bit as well. I think Rails does a pretty rotten job of enforcing SRP. Active record itself violates SRP because it is both persistent and a container for business object. So um, as soon as you make your first active record class, you're already on the supply on side. But I love the idea of having a single sort of feature class that handles routing for all the different things. That's that's what I was hoping you were going to say. <laughs> so that I was really glad to hear that. One thing we touched on, Chuck touched on a little bit, talking about beta users, and you just touched on as well, is A B testing. So how does feature toggling interact with A B testing functionality in an application?
1: In the article that I wrote, I took a very broad view of what a feature toggle is and I included things like A B testing as a type of feature toggle. Now if you'd have asked me a year ago, or if, if I'd have if Pete from a year ago had heard Pete today saying that, Pete from a year ago would be quite annoyed at Pete from today because it didn't really fit into my definition of feature toggle. I, and I, I used to get quite frustrated when people would kind of lump all this stuff together. But I guess I've kind of come to the conclusion that because people often get all of this stuff mixed up and they often use similar code to either manage these toggles or to, to kind of do the routing decisions, it makes sense to kind of conceptually lump them all together and then look at different types of toggles differently and and manage them differently. So for me, an A-B a routing decision for like a multivariate test, like an A-B test, you can still make that routing decision based on, you can still use the same kind of feature class or toggle router to make both a routing decision based on A-B testing, but also a routing decision based on, let's say, permissions. So if the user is a premium user or is part of an administration group, then give them extra capabilities. We can still use the same kind of patterns to manage which code paths we go down. They're just the, the underlying reasons behind that decision are different.
2: That makes a lot of sense. I think um, I can understand why I think from a year ago I would take exception to that because the problem you were trying to solve was a problem of continuous delivery. So feature flags for continuous delivery, you know, are one thing, and feature flags for A/B testing are another thing, but when you think about the conceptual solution, it's like yeah, it's a it's a class group of responsibility for determine, does this thing show up or not. So.
1: Yeah. What, and the thing other it? thing, the other thing that I've seen uh, happen lots of times is a product team or a delivery team will start using feature toggles for that continuous delivery reason to manage kind of releases and decouple feature release from deployment, and then the product manager or the operations folks that that team is working with kind of get the whiff of this awesome capability and they start kind of saying like huh maybe we could use these feature toggles to do a testing. <laughs> maybe we could use and the you know the tech lead and in this case the tech lead is perhaps me uh, starts kind of cringing and getting really frustrated because it's like no that's not what they're they're for they're not for that kind of stuff but I think you've kind of got to embrace that this is a really useful capability and say okay this is clearly an attractive thing for not just the the developers on our team but also the product managers on our team the folks running operations. So let's figure out how we can give them some of these capabilities but use them in a different way or expose them in a different way so that we don't get everything all kind of mixed up together and, and mm-hmm. used in an
0: inappropriate context.
2: So you, novel uh, novel application code is supposed to be an advantage of anyway, so you're so, winning.
0: I'm just wondering, do you split those up then? So you have like a, a features class and then you have an A-B tests class? So I would
1: say... You really want to in- encapsulate that. You want to hide that detail from the toggle point. So that if that, that if statement or however you're, you're making that, that routing, implementing that kind of routing between different code paths, it shouldn't really care, right? Like, I don't care whether I'm hiding the recommendations panel because it's an A B testing thing or because it isn't ready for production yet or, or what. Like, just tell me whether to show it or hide it. So abstract that away from the toggle point. But then under the covers in that implementation, you're probably going to be pulling from different sources for to decide to make that routing decision. So for example, release toggles, so these things that we're using to decide whether to show or hide a, a half-finished feature, I would argue that they're best implemented very statically. So I, I wouldn't want to be able to manage those um, at, at runtime, because I think that just adds extra complexity to your to your deployment pipeline. On the other hand, something like a permissioning toggle or a, um, a multivariate testing, an experiment toggle, is what I call them for, for like A/B testing. That has to be a runtime decision, right? Because it has to take into account the context of which user is is making a web request, if it's if it's a web app. So you need to implement these things differently. And under the covers, you're going to kind of going to be composing together decisions coming from several different places. But in the code that's making the actual the routing through the different code paths, I think that you don't you want to hide that complexity from the rest of your application.
0: Okay, so then I get to pick on one of my favorite gems to pick on. And that is the CanCan gem, which does authorization, and I've yeah. used it, and I've had a class that was you know five hundred or a thousand lines long because there were so many different ways of doing permissions. Correct. So yeah. the the issue that I see here is that if you have them all in that feature class or that toggle manager class how do you keep it from becoming so long that you don't know which toggles do what so
1: well one thing i'd say in general is any team that's using feature toggles should be trying as hard as they can to use as few of them as possible and to retire them as soon as possible that's the number one stumbling block i I see with teams yeah but authorization
0: toggles are probably going to be longer lived
1: yeah yeah so so there's some stuff that you can't get away from it needs to be there Um, I I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think that uh, you use the same kind of techniques that you use with anything where you want the business logic to be clear, right? You spend – I mean, this is is one of the things that I – one of the frustrations I have in general is is when people kind of think of this kind of stuff as it's like it's not – it's just authorization or it's just configuration, so I won't, like, actually do a good job of of making it readable code. Like, it's still – It's still code in your system. It's actually code that you probably have to modify quite a lot. And in my opinion, the code that you modify a lot is the code that you should be taking the extra time over to make sure it's kind of coherent. So definitely. Yeah.
2: What about like a standard refactoring practice and applied to that feature code? So if you see, for example, one of the smells for me is if I have namespace methods, like it's, you know, recommendation engine show and recommendation engine such and such. I say, <laughs> hey, I probably have a pass there. So there's no reason why you couldn't, like, create, um, feature modules under a feature namespace and keep the code divided up nicely so you don't end up with the 5,000 line kitchen sink feature information.
1: Yeah. 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 I really like, that's an awesome smell. I've never, I've, I've never heard of that one before, but that's actually, that's actually, I a have real a,
2: real uh, fun. I have a gem called snuffle that, uh, um, looks for, it's basically like, do you have an object here? And um, one of the smells that it track is namespace methods. It does namespace methods and data points.
1: That's awesome.
0: So then let's, let's go back to the idea of having as few te- feature toggles as possible. So if you have a team, a large team, or a large number of teams working on the same application, how do you keep track of all of the different toggles so you know when you can get rid of one? So a few techniques that I like.
1: So toggles that intentionally we're not we're expecting to be short-lived so a release toggle is the kind of the most common one of those where we've just put it in place while we're working on a feature and once the feature is ready for production and and tested we want to get rid of that toggle Uh, for those kind of toggles and uh, there's others that kind of fit into that short-lived category there's so a couple of techniques one is when you create the toggle um Write a, if you're doing some kind of agile, write a story to remove the toggle and put it onto the backlog. Uh, that doesn't mean that maybe someone will de- continuously deprioritize that, that story. So that's not a silver bullet, but that will at least help you remember that, that it's to be done. I've seen teams have some success with actually putting time bombs in their toggle and like actually timestamping when I create a new toggle, like when was this toggle introduced into the code base and put that into the configuration file. And then have some code where the app will like crash at launch, or like will refuse to launch if it detects a feature toggle that's older than two months or something. You do and that
2: with a test, tests, too.
1: Yeah, 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 and um, mm-hmm. just putting a test suite around that is another way of doing it. I've seen some like some dysfunctional teams that have failing tests that they don't care about. <laughs> they will definitely care if the app refuses to launch. That's so, true. Um, yeah, but then that that's a process issue, not idea.
0: a not a you know a feature toggle issue. I like the idea of putting a failing test in just because then hopefully your CI will catch it and warn you before you try and you know and at least prompt you to go refactor before you deploy. Yeah, and you'll know and other, why.
2: Yeah. You'll know that it's like oh because we forgot to turn now but,
0: Yeah. Well, you should just put a big piece of ASCII art in the in the error. Don't oh, all uh,
2: don't all of your tests have ASCII art in them? <laughs>
0: I'm gonna start doing that, you know, Darth Vader. <laughs> yeah, I, I find your lack of that, refactoring <laughs> disturbing. So
1: I once wrote a uh, cucumber plugin that would use the say command on RSX to oh. uh, to <laughs> to like narrate BDD tests. There's a video. If you look, if you look up puke puke, I, I made <laughs> I recorded a video of doing some iOS testing with it. It was the most annoying thing. I I managed to like get my team to the point that they wanted to throw me out of the room within about two minutes. So yeah.
2: I wrote a gem yeah. called Ambient Spec which has the opposite effect. It's an R Spec formatter that plays ambient music to um tune of your specs. And if there's a test failure it's like this gong sound, but it's it's all very gentle. It's like very soothing. But if you have a long running test suite it like keeps you entertained and like calms you down.
1: That's so cool. You know, I I remember reading this article from It was the very start of my career, so it was probably about 15 years ago, these operations teams that had wired up various metrics like CPU usage and like memory and stuff like that to different kind of like ambient noises so like uh, a a babbling brook indicated like how loud the 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 river was indicated the cpu usage and how and how many birds were chirping was like the number of kind of thread context switches (laughs) or something like that cool and you just have it always running in the background and it really leverages the pattern uh matching in in human brains because you don't you notice when things sound different than usual right like So if you suddenly start hearing more bird chirps than usual, people kind of start like maybe noticing and, and wondering what's going on with the system. I'm, I'm actually a really big fan of that idea. I've never actually seen it really rolled out. I, I just read this article about it a long time ago. But I actually, I would love to see a team that's doing that, that has like a, a sound in the background of their system in production. Try the, uh, the demo and see what you think. Yeah, that's awesome. That's very cool.
0: Speaking of gems, are there gems that people have written that allow you to do feature toggles?
1: Yes, there are. I have one that myself and another Fort worker open source that's not really a general purpose one, but it's it's a very simple gem that's focused primarily on, I don't know, a very minimal implementation. I'm trying to remember what we called it. Rack
2: for so it basically gives you a DSL? Um...
1: All, all it does is it lets you, it manages like a very simple way of just, reading a feature flag configuration from a yaml file displaying those flags and then uh, having like a little admin ui where you can go to this app in ui and see what the state of the flags is in the current environment and override them and when you over and this is generally for qas or for devs who are working actively on a on a release on a release toggle that's not ready to be going into production what you do is you um When you override them, it it just shoves a special cookie into the browser. And then every time you hit the Rack application, so Rails app or or any other kind of rack based application, it will sniff that cookie and kind of do a little jiggery pokery to, to change what the state of that flag is for the context of that request. So it was a very kind of simplistic, well not simplistic, but it was a very kind of straightforward way that we used for a specific client. I think that that client is still still using it in kind of in production, as it were. Um, it was pretty lightweight, not like super powerful, but good enough for, for us to be able to ship latent cl- latent code into production and allow allow it to be overridden. And you can even override it in a production environment. So you could do kind of testing in in production if you want, if you have access to this special admin page that will set the cookies for you. So that's that's one that I'm aware of because I built it. There's other ones out there. To be honest, there's something about these kind of systems that people always end up building their own bespoke ones. Um, I don't know why; it's just a certain size problem or something. But um, it I, seems I like, thought
0: it through in my head, and I think after about five minutes of thinking through all the scenarios, I completely over-engineered it. So, in my head, yeah.
1: Well, that's that's the thing that you see that I I, I see a lot as well. Is is it's a really nice problem to engineers want to over-engineer it. There's something about it that people start thinking of like, oh, we can have a general purpose system mm-hmm. and it can read from configuration file and then we can overlay per environment configs and maybe we'll do like a runtime override as well. My advice in general is like, wait until you actually need, like really need all of that functionality. Start simple and kind of respect the Yagni principle, basically.
0: I had like 10 different toggles that were all implemented differently and stuff in my head and I was like, no, it's probably been too much.
2: What are the implications for testing?
0: Yeah, that's a great
1: question. So when you first introduce this idea to a team, anyone who has a test, a focus on testing will probably freak out a little bit at the idea of like, now I have to test with every toggle off and on and every combinational, you know, combinatoric um, version of, of these toggles is the only way I can verify the code that could be in production. And that's not It's not quite as as bad as that because these toggles tend to not interact with each other, so you don't really need to test every combination of like, you know, let's say you've got a forgot password, a toggle that exposes a new forgot password functionality and a toggle that manages your recommendations panel. You don't really need to test all of the combinations of those being on and off because they're not going to interfere with each other. But these toggles do introduce an extra burden on testing because you do have to verify the behavior that the system works as expected, both with a toggle on or with a toggle off, if you're assuming that that toggle is going to be turned on at some point soon in production, if it's still... Early days and you don't necessarily have to totally fully test the system with that toggle on if you're not planning on it on turning it on in production anytime soon, but you do want to figure out ways to test your system with toggles off or on and you need to figure out ways to temporarily override those toggles in the context of a test so that you can do that verification so there is an overhead there
0: you said that they don't usually interact so what about the cases where you do have a toggle inside of a toggle or you have a toggle, a toggle inside of a toggle inside of a toggle inside of a toggle, et cetera, et cetera. Well, hopefully
1: you don't have a toggle inside of a toggle inside. <laughs> there are some cases, I suppose, where you have this kind of nesting of, of features. And in that case, in some ways, it's not really, again, it's not, you don't have to test every combination. Because if one toggle is inside of the conditional of another one, then if the outer one is turned off, then the inner one is never going to get exercised, right? Mm. But you do sometimes have these, these features that interact with each other. What I've observed is, in general, is teams will be smart and they won't try and work on two interacting, interfering kind of bits of functionality at the same time because it it's an ineffective way to build out software. Exactly the same as if you were, let's say you're not doing trunk based development with feature toggles and instead you're using feature branches, you're unlikely to sign the team up for two parallel streams of work that are working on the same area of the code base because you're going to, that's going to, cause a bunch of confusion and merge conflicts and stepping on each other's toes. So that's the same with feature toggles as it is with, with feature
0: branches. I think I just had a ghostbusters moment. Don't cross the streams.
1: Back
2: off, man. I'm a
0: scientist.
2: <laughs> so um, how do you introduce the idea of feature toggles to your development team that are used to feature branches?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, it's a, it, you're not just introducing feature toggles. You're really the main thing you're introducing in, in that context is the idea of trunk based development. Um, and feature toggles is one of the tools that, that you're using. So I guess the way I start getting feature toggles into a code base is again, like I try as much as possible to uh, respect Yagni and I will literally start the first feature toggle. I actually just did this with a team a couple of weeks ago. We realized that we had some work in progress that we wanted to hide and we, and it was too big for us to, to kind of just have a, a two or three day branch. So we decided we needed feature toggles and we hadn't set it up yet. And it literally just put in like an, an if statement that was with a, it was like if dollar sign turn feature on. And that was just a global variable that, that we set at the very top of the application boot code. Uh, and that was like how we got started. And we rolled that out and then we immediately kind of like came back to it and and started making it a bit more sophisticated. We introduced this toggle router, um, but the implementation of the toggle router was just a hard-coded return true uh, or return false. And and the configuration was just to change that return false to a return true when we wanted to test this thing out. And that's that's how I recommend teams get started. Just do the simplest thing that you need, but be aware that you will... Your needs will become more sophisticated fairly soon, and you just need to be willing to kind of keep going back to that, that toggle router to your feature, feature toggling infrastructure and kind of upgrade it. What can it push back to you typically here? Yeah. It's more work. It feels like more work than feature branches. Because feature branching, the cost is hidden and there's not a direct, obvious correlation that people see between them working on feature branches and the pain of their of their merge their merge hell. They, they believe that that's just a cost of doing business. But when you start asking people to wrap conditionals around their code and actually support the software being able to do either being able to to run with the feature off or with the feature on, that feels like additional overhead that a team doesn't want to do. And so that's the the most common pushback I get is like, oh, look, like, look how much more complicated our code base has become uh, because we've got all of these if statements. And my, you know, my response to that is yes, but you haven't had to deal with a merge conflict since you started doing this. And that's a huge win. And also, there's some discussion at some point about moving beyond just using conditionals. So I think teams will start by just putting sprinkling if statements through the code. And it does start to feel painful. Again, this is software. It's not. We can use the same principles we use for kind of abstracting over business decisions and use them for our toggling decisions as well. So we can use things like the strategy pattern and kind of common interfaces with different implementations to allow us to do that toggling without having to have a, a ton of if statements all over the base. How do you manage code reviews for
2: that
1: feature branch? Ah, so that's interesting. So I, I I kind of had a a quick like. What's the correlation there? I think feature branches, I am absolutely fine with a short-lived. I'm absolutely fine with that GitHub-style approach of short feature branch with a pull request, and the pull request triggers a code review before a merge. That's fine with me. That's totally compatible with trunk-based development if those feature branches are short-lived. This is, I think, one of the big disconnects that the kind of the two rival camps have. Like you have folks on the trunk-based development side that that are talking about feature branches being bad. And you have people who use GitHub-based or the GitHub-style workflow of uh, short-lived story branches plus a pull request for code review. And they feel like they're in disagreement. I actually think that anyone who does trunk-based development would never say like, oh, you can never have any branches ever what they're saying is don't have long-lived branches. So you can still use that same practice. The thing that I think people don't get is before GitHub, we were doing the equivalent, or sorry, before Git, back when more people were using tools like SVN, we were doing the equivalent of short-lived feature branches all the time. We just did it by having our local copy that we weren't committing, right? Like, it used to be you would work on something on your machine for two or three days, and then when it was ready to kind of get integrated with the rest of your of the codebase, you would you would commit it into version control. Now what we do is we commit into our local version control, and maybe we work on a branch, or maybe the, the branch is just the fact that we haven't pushed up to a remote. Uh, it's still conceptually the same as what we used to do, it's just that we've got better tooling to support us. But I, I still don't think that that kind of workflow is at all incompatible with with the ideas behind trunk-based development. The key thing is be integrating on a very regular basis
2: that makes sense you're um you're talking about SVN. took me back to the dark days when i was doing net development we had something called visual source safe yeah Where you actually had to check out a file only one person could have a file checked out of their time but what did merge complex
1: my first job uh was part of the many things i did at my first job was managing visual source safe for the team microsoft's recommended best practices was to uh like defragment it every week because it would get itself all up in a tizzy like <laughs> a, that was possibly the worst Microsoft tool I've ever used. And kids really today
2: complain about Git and I'm like, you have no idea how good you have
1: it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, try uh try uh, what's is not visual source safe. What's the what's the one oh Clearcase. If you've ever used Clearcase then you would think S V N is amazing. Uh...
0: All right, anything else we should
1: hit before we get to the picks? I mean, so I think the thing that I would say to anyone who's doing this or thinking about doing this, the most important single piece of advice I would have is work really hard to keep the number of toggles low and work really hard to not let long-lived toggles affect the quality, the internal quality of your code base. I think if you can do those two things, then you'll see a lot of the benefits that feature toggling gives you without getting bitten. The the teams that I see struggling with this it's usually because they've allowed the number of toggles to kind of grow exponentially, or they or just grow out of control, or they've um they've not done enough kind of care and attention to to how they're actually implementing these toggles in their code base. If you do those two things, I think you will end up getting a net positive from, from from using this approach.
0: All right. Very cool. Well, let's go ahead and get to some picks. Coraline, do you have some picks
2: for us? I have a couple of picks. Um, first one is a document called Cryptic Ruby Global Variables and No Meanings. It is a comprehensive list of Ruby global variables. There are a couple that I learned, like $sign colon, which is a shortcut for load path, and um, $sign zero, which is the name of the program that's currently being run, um, the author is a guy named Jimmy nee. He knows um, tons of these global variables and he's put together this cheat sheet to help you out. So um, if you know them and remember them,, uh, he also includes like a bunch of regexes that are kind of interesting. So um, knowing them can save you some code when you're trying to figure out details for your environment, um, among other things. So I'll post a link to that cheat sheet in the show notes. Um second thing is a repo called Railsbridge and Fest. And I'm, um, one of the organizers for a women's hackathon. It's taking place at the end of this month in Chicago. Um, we're hacking on social justice projects. And, um, we're going to have varied people there with, um, different backgrounds and different technology at their disposal. We, and are anticipating some Windows users, for example, not everyone can afford a Mac. So the Rails Rich install best documentation gives you detailed setup information for getting a development environment for Ruby or Rails up and running. It includes specific examples for um, what to do with people who are running Windows. So it's great if you are putting together a class or a workshop or a hackathon. It's a great guide to reuse. I'm really happy they open sourced it and made it available to the world in general. So um, that is my second pick.
0: All right. I'm going to not pick. I'm actually going to just really briefly put uh, a few things out there. I'm going to be traveling a bit. Um, I think this episode goes out next week, the week after next or the week after this goes out, if I my reckoning is correct, is the week of the 27th, 28th, 29th, etc. cetera. Um, I'm going to be in San Francisco with some of the hosts from the iFreak Show. Pete was a panelist on the iFreak Show for quite a while, actually, and uh, from the JavaScript Jabber Show. And uh, we're going to be out at Build Conference. So if you're attending Build Conference or you live in or around San Francisco, I believe we're going to be doing our meetup on the 30th of March. And we're going to be doing it somewhere near where the Build Conference is at. They actually are going to have a podcasting section of the show floor. And we're going to be there hanging out and interviewing people and stuff like that. So uh, if you want to come and meet us and you have a ticket to the conference, then by all means, come see us on the show floor. And if not, then keep an eye out. I will be sending out emails, letting people know where we're going to be and when we're going to be there. So I think it'll be a lot of fun. We're going to try and get Pete to come out and uh, hang with us because he's out there in San Francisco area. And uh, looking forward to that. Uh, A few days later, on the 2nd and 3rd, I'm actually going to be in Las Vegas for about a week. One of my mastermind groups is doing our retreat there. And then we're going to all go to MicroConf, which is a small business conference. Anyway, we're going to do a meetup, I think, on the 2nd or 3rd. I'm still working out the details there. I've been to Vegas plenty of times, so I kind of know where I want to do it. But uh, anyway, we'll get the details out on that too. So if you're going to be in Las Vegas the first weekend in April, then keep an eye out for stuff going on there. In May, we're doing a meetup in Salt Lake City for JavaScript Jabber and Adventures in Angular. Um, If you live in Salt Lake City, I may have already met you because I live out near Salt Lake City as well. But this is specific for people attending NGConf or that live in the area and want to show up and meet some of the other folks who don't live in Salt Lake City from those shows. Finally, or semi-finally, in July, I'm going to be in Chicago for Podcast Movement. And I've decided to stay an extra day and do a meetup on the 9th of July. So if you're in Chicago, feel free to show up. I'm going to try and get people who live in that area that I know. Uh, Coraline lives somewhere in Illinois, I think. I'm in
2: Chicago. You're in Chicago?
0: so So we'll try and get Coraline to come. But yeah, I'll be there and I'm just going to have a meetup and see who wants to come and hang out and eat some food. And at all of these, I try and meet everybody who comes. I've had as many as 50 people RSVP. So it just depends on how many people are there. But I will definitely be happy to meet you. The reason that I do this is just that uh, it's one thing to talk to people online. It's another thing to have the 15-minute podcast listener calls that I do. And then it's yet another thing to be able to meet people in person and i really want to you know shake your hand find out who you are find out what you're about and it's just a great way for me to do that so uh, i really appreciate people coming out i think it's it's a really if you want to do me a favor come <laughs> finally there is a small chance that i will be in nashville in november uh there's also a small chance that i'll be in london in september but i don't have any firm plans because I'm waiting to hear back from people involved there as to whether or not I'll actually be going. So just keep an ear out for those. If you join the mailing list, go to rubyrogues.com. You'll see a little thing slide down that gives you the top 10 Ruby Rogues episodes in your inbox. If you don't want to do that, then just on the top of the page, there's actually another place you can sign up just to get the episodes in your inbox every week. And that's where I've been sending those emails. So if you want to be informed, I'm going to send out another email this week or next week and let people know where we're going to be in San Francisco and Las Vegas. So anyway, those are my sort of picks, and we'll let Pete do some picks.
1: You're picking like every city in the world. You're a very jet-set I'm very impressed.
0: My pick, so pick
1: number one is a new CI CD tool called Concourse from the folks at Pivotal. Who are, um, it's the, by the folks who are behind Cloud Foundry. And it's a really interesting CI tool. It's focused on builds in containers. So each, every, every test or build or whatever the job that you're, you're running is in a isolated container, which means A, it's isolated and won't interfere with previous builds or get interfered with by previous builds. And B, it means that you can have this kind of homogeneous pool of workers. You don't need to kind of like have all of your builds queuing up, waiting for the one agent that has the right version of Selenium installed or whatever. It also, Concourse does a really good job of modeling your continuous delivery pipeline as a true pipeline, something that Jenkins does not do. Stop kidding yourself. Jenkins does not do this. Even with that plugin, it still doesn't really work. So if you're really focused on continuous delivery, this is a, a new tool that I think is worth taking a look at. It's fairly young, but it's really pretty, pretty interesting stuff. My next pick is a technique called architectural decision records.
2: We and do those. I love those. Those are okay. amazing.
1: Cool, that's cool. I'm interested. I'm glad to hear that from someone who actually does them. Because I've I've heard about them. I just read about them the other day and they seem really cool, but I've never I've not had a chance to, to experiment with them yet. So I'm glad that you're having some success. Maybe I'll uh start advocating even more strongly for this idea. So it's this idea <laughs> of kind of uh writing having just like very low-fi simple documentation kind of record of the big architectural decisions that you're making in your code base particularly helpful i suspect when you have new people joining the team and they want to revisit all of the old decisions that we made so uh, i'll i'll post a link to a blog post that uh, introduced this idea way back in 2011 and there's also a tool by a very smart man called matt price and he's produced a, a tool to manage these these flat file ADR records implemented using Bash for his sins. Um, we, have,
2: we, them at, we have a good repo of architecture decisions, and we do each ADR as a pull request to add a new file to the um, repo. That oh. um, that lets people ask questions and um, you know use oh, the standard wow. code review practices to ask questions and give feedback. So works
1: well anything- for us. I think we need to do Do you an have any, like, this. public stuff? Done? Yeah, yeah, I think at least a mini-episode or something. I, what I'd love is to have something that I could point people to, like a, a blog post that talks about how you're doing it or, like, an example of, of the repo or something like that it would be really interesting. I don't
2: have anything like that, but that's an excellent idea.
1: You're, you're welcome. I will just volunteer you to do something. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate that.
2: Thank you. Yeah, well. I, was just, I was just wondering, what should I do next?
1: So. <laughs> yeah, in your copious spare time.
0: I'm
2: going to GitHub, so I'm sure I'll come in a free time. Yeah.
0: Okay. Oh, I need a soundbite um, that goes. Geek, tangent. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> My next pick is a, is
1: a non-pick, an unpick, an anti-pick. I anti-pick hotel coffee. It is terrible. Those machines are the scourge of society, and the coffee that they give you to put in them is even worse. Yeah. I highly recommend bringing a bag of good coffee and a little portable grinder and an AeroPress with you if you are a regular hotel traveler. And in a act of shameless self-promotion, I have a blog post on my blog talking about my coffee setup with a terrible link-baity title, and I'm going to put that in the show notes, and I would encourage you to read it and then tell me that I'm wrong.
2: Um, I was just in the UK, and I had a machine in my hotel room called a Nespresso, and yeah. I determined that Ness as in Nescafe and Nespresso actually means not. Is in <laughs> European
1: yeah, like fake or pseudo. Exactly. <laughs> and then my last pick is a beer pick because I love picking beer. I'm going to pick Red Chair Northwest Pale Ale from Deschutes. I have currently am having a love affair with Deschutes at the moment. They're doing loads of really good beers. This is another one that's really good. It's a nice hoppy kind of pale ale, pretty heavy on the malt, pretty kind of toffee and kind of like dark and kind of chewy caramel and those kind of flavors, but it's not over the top on alcohol or hops. So I really, this is like one of my go-to beers now. I'm really, really, um, really, really digging it. So, um, if you can get hold of the shoots where you live and you
0: are a fan of beer, then I recommend trying it out. And those are my picks. Awesome. If people want to find out more about what we've talked about today or follow you, Pete, what do they do? Uh, if
1: they want to find out more about feature toggles, they should read all the words in my really long article about feature toggles. That's at martinfowl.com slash articles slash feature dash toggles dot Or just Google feature toggles. It will be the first or second link probably by now. So, yeah, that, that's, that has more details on feature toggles. If folks want to find out more about me, they can hit me up on Twitter. Ph1 is my Twitter handle, and uh, my blog is or my website is thepete.net. T h e p e t e dot net. And I really love talking about this stuff. I love talking about a lot of stuff, but feature toggles in particular is something in the continuous delivery is something I'm pretty passionate about. So. I would love to hear from folks who are either having trouble with this stuff or having some successes and want to share their successes or just want to tell me I'm an absolute idiot and that feature branches are the way forward. Uh, I welcome the opportunity to discuss this with you. So please hit me up on Twitter or find me on GitHub or LinkedIn or whatever. And yeah,
0: love to talk about it. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and wrap this up. Thanks for coming, Pete. Thanks for having me. Yeah, catch you all next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net bandwidth for this segment is provided by cashfly the world's fastest cdn deliver your content fast with cashfly visit c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com to learn more would you like to join a conversation with the rogues and their guests want to support the show we have a form that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time you can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlay